Welcome in. It's Detours from the Detroit Free Press. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary. Hey, and I'm poet, event producer, Joel Fluent Green. And this gallery is celebrating 35 years of art. Have things you no longer need, or things maybe that you need? A local shop is hosting an event. Tales of creating new business. It's another season based out of here in Detroit to your TV. When it originally started as as a Michigan show, um, I think that we could have probably dreamed that it would have been national, but we had no idea that we would have to um, learn as much as we did in such a short period to be national in that first season. If you're a guide for the weekend, we have a few suggestions from Fluent and me. And this week, remember a man who brought magic to Michigan and put a small Michigan town on the map. That's right. Welcome in. It's another week of detours. I want to thank you so much for taking a listen. If you subscribe on iTunes, uh, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever it is that you get this podcast each and every week, or maybe you're listening at Freep.com, whatever it is, we just want to thank you so much for taking the time. Steve is away this week, and uh, I couldn't be happier to uh, to have uh, Mr. Joel Fluent Green with me here. Uh, and uh, that is uh, your legal name, correct? <laughs> well, Fluent's not the legal. Actually, my middle name is Lorenzo, actually. I just threw the fluent in there years ago, you know, for the, the poetry hip-hop value of it. But, yeah, happy to be here, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for thanks for coming out this week yeah. and uh, sitting in for Steve. And, you know, uh, I, I just thought, you know, why not? Uh, Steve's away, and uh, why not bring in a new voice, bring in uh, some new sound and kind of talk about things. And, and we'll catch up uh, with you in a bit in, uh, in terms of, you know, all the different things you have going on. Because, sure. I mean, believe me, if you don't know, uh, what, what he's doing, uh, it's it's kind of exhausting. But uh, <laughs> you need to leave Detroit at once. <laughs> <laughs> There's just too much going on. I'm serious. But is isn't that always uh, what this show is about? It's sort of an embarrassment of riches. I mean, you sit around, you take a look, and you go, "Wow, uh, there's so much stuff going on." And uh, one of the places where things are going on is where we are this week. Oh, and Nandi Gallery, I love it. Uh, celebrating 35 years of supplying great art, art and culture to the city. Um, it's a jewel, man. I love this place. Uh, it's a beautiful building. I would love to do something here eventually. I'll actually be hosting the Bilal show on the 15th that he, he mentioned. So nice. looking forward to that. Yeah. Nice. So uh, not only that, uh, like we were saying, 35 years in the art business. I mean, uh, it's hard to be in business. It's, it's hard to do what you do. It's hard to do what I do. It's hard for most people to do whatever it is they do. Sure. I have a friend of mine who used to own a gallery, and he said, you know, open a restaurant because people need to eat. Not everyone wants to buy art. So uh, trying to be in the art business for 35 years, is, is uh, that's uh, quite a cause for celebration. Yeah, definitely, man. So I uh, got a chance to uh, speak with the man behind the gallery, George Anamdi. I'm George Anamdi. I'm the president of the Anamdi Center for Contemporary Art um, and a developer of the Sugar Hill Arts District here in Detroit. Well, you are, you are on a celebration. I'm looking at the cards <laughs> here. Rather nice. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, it has been 35 years. We started in downtown Detroit in, in Harmony Park, which is now Paradise Valley, uh, in 1981. I mean, 35 years uh, to be in the art game, is uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's quite a while to, to have the staying power. What do, you, what do you attribute to that for you? you uh, didn't have any doubt about it. You know, it's just uh, more mission-driven then um, economics, I guess. Um, I started, the whole concept of having a gallery came out of uh, my work as a psychologist, and I thought the arts was very important for a community's mental health. So I started it while I was at Wayne State as a professor. Then, then it wasn't my plan to live on this. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, I didn't know it was going to be that difficult too, by the way. You know, but uh, so part of it was just being mission driven and not having doubt, you know. Yeah. Well, take me back to uh, that opening, 1981. Uh, talk to me about the space, um, you know, what was some of the first things? Oh, that was a great opening. It was, uh, well, it was in Harmony Park. It's a 5,000 square foot space. It's currently the seafood uh, market, the restaurant there. Uh, in our first exhibition, 
was a group show of New York artists, all abstract. Now, 1981, that was just so revolutionary because, one, I had started off uh, having a mission of doing for African-American artists or display African-American art. And to go in and do an all abstract show was just unheard of. Let's put, I'll say it this way: an all abstract show by any gallery in those in 1981 was rare, mm. let alone an African American gallery. Mm. So, um, but it got such rave reviews. Joy Colby of the Detroit News, she reported on it uh, at the end of the year. She said, this is the best group show of the season. And it was really uh, just a major, major show. And it taught me a lot about art because I didn't, although I loved it, I wasn't trained in it. Uh, and just meeting the artists, dealing with the artists, dealing with the public and how to do that. So it was just a very festive time. It, it was economically, it wasn't as uh, prosperous as you would want it to be. But at that time, I had a job, so it, that wasn't important, you know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, 1981, uh, I mean, I look around now. We're here, we're in, mm -hmm. you know, Midtown area, or as you also reference the Sugar Hill mm -hmm. neighborhood as well. And sort of looking around and going, you know, there's that gallery, there's that place, there's mm -hmm. that place, that place opened recently and all this. It, what was there a lot going on uh, in '81? Yeah, gallery-wise. Well, ironically, um, the uh, the late now the late '80s and early '90s, there was a lot going on in in the metropolitan area. Okay, a lot more than it is now, uh, even now today. Now, to, uh, the difference is, I would say, many of the galleries because I had moved to Birmingham and um, and moving back about 15 years ago now. Uh, that was a big deal. One, the, you going to Detroit, you leaving Birmingham, that was a very big deal. But the thing is, is that we did have a very active art scene in the late 80s in Detroit, and in, in the city too, by the way, but it was the old metropolitan area. Uh, Detroit historically has always been uh, culturally rich, okay? It, but it's one of those we never used to tell anybody <laughs> Okay, uh, so no, we never tooted our horn, and as I say, you know. But uh, Detroit uh, has had a history of that. Back in the, the when I first started the '90s, for African American artists, Detroit was one of the biggest collecting communities in this country. The artists sold more work here than anywhere, except maybe for New York, for those who are in New York. But most of the artists, this was their livelihood. Yeah. Well, especially when we were talking about uh, African-American art, was that because of the black middle class and all of that that was here? Yes, it was part of the black middle class, but we had a whole history, like I said, we had a long, rich history of that well, among the African-American middle class community here. I remember uh, there's Josephine Love. She had what was known as your heritage house where she taught um, art, art classes. And I'll give you an example, Al Loving and Ali McGee, I mean, Al, uh, Al Loving is no longer with us, but uh, he would be in his early 80s. He took classes there, you know, so they had this tradition of the arts. We had collectors starting off in the 50s, you know, with, with art. Just people, a lot of support for the arts here, much more than uh, most of your cities around this country. Yeah. Well, 35 years, obviously, there's... Um I mean, maybe you've seen shifts, uh, genres, changes, uh, things that people are uh, looking at now. How is sort of the art that comes in, maybe newer artists, you know, um, how, how has that changed? Or are they talking about similar things? The style's different? What do you say? Well, uh, well, one, like I said, we were more centered on abstraction mm -hmm. or figurative expression. Um, now I would say there's a lot more conceptual art that is coming into the room, uh, coming into uh, the, on the scene here. Then there's also a lot of young artists, young galleries who pop up to do some things. Uh, but by and large, um, the ones that usually have the staying powers is the ones who are going to be selling the objects 
you know, <laughs> the painting, the sculpture, those things, you know. So we uh, also are just working hard here to make this more of a commercial art scene for the artists. See, there's um, everyone, we get, the artists get a lot of philanthropic support in Detroit, but one key thing I think is really missing is that we need to get the commercial support for the artists. And that meaning is like sometimes the philanthropic community may need want to look at the the galleries uh, that are hosting these artists as, from a different vantage point to help the galleries because if we have more galleries, then we really become an art mecca where people come to buy art. And that's what we really want to work towards. That's what I'm striving to do, make this a place where people say, hey, let's go to Detroit and see, pick up some pieces, or, uh, make an art scene because that's where you don't want to rely upon your, your uh, local community for your arts. Well, as you said, you moved down here uh, 2001 or yeah, so. Yeah, 2001. Yeah. Obviously, a lot of changes. Some people have said good changes, bad changes. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you view what it's been for you? Well, I have to, I don't know, I would have to say they're, they're good changes uh, just in a physical sense. But I think one of the big things to me about what the changes in Detroit that to me is important is that... Um, uh, the changes in uh, the attitudinal changes, the psychology, I always say that we have a certain grit here. We have a certain authenticity here. And we got a certain funk here. And I say those things have to be preserved because that's why you come to Detroit. You may come, I mean, people come and say, oh, you can get a cheap property. But you stay because you see the grit that people have. You see the authenticity that people have. And you see the funk of this community. And if you, if you just let development go as just to build a build, clean building buildings and uh, cleaning in the streets and all like that and changing it where you have more of a suburban kind of uh, development model, you're going to start losing those. You'll lose the funk. You'll lose the authenticity, and you're ultimately going to lose the grit because you're going to start paying attention to people who come in as opposed to the people who are already here who have been toughing it out for these years. So that's what we really have to uh, be uh, weary of not losing because that is very, very important. That's what, that's what distinguishes us from almost any other city, you know. Yeah. The grit, authenticity, and the funk. <laughs> I have to say, um, those are the big three, I guess. You know, we used to talk yeah. about the big three as the auto, but, yeah. you know, I think you've yeah. succinctly done it. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, you know, I, I coined a phrase called psychological gentrification. Yeah. And the psychological gentrification is like the removing of those ingredients. Yeah. Because it's like there was a power that people have in Detroit. We have a can-do kind of attitude. I mean, you try everything, uh, and this is this cross all racial lines when they when they really are Detroiters. Okay, I think when you come in and try, you know, it's a difference. Yeah. But those Detroiters, you know, I you know, because I used to feel it when I was in Birmingham. I've had all kind of people would say all races and everything. They come, uh, they may be a European American. They say, I just don't feel right out here in Birmingham. <laughs> and I'm, I look at you like. How could you not feel right? You know, but that's how you know that's how the deep Detroit is. That mm-hmm. that that authenticity, the grit, and that funk, yeah. it gets in there. And when new people come, if they are allowed to let it infiltrate their being, mm-hmm. they then become big supporters. They become assets to the community. If not, you're gonna end up whitewashing those things, and it becomes a generic, you know white bread kind of place it just won't be exciting because it then becomes like any other city of america right okay yeah i and you know sort of taking that idea you know is that i think that's probably like you talked about you know your background in psychology that's sort mm-hmm. of that psychological headspace that understanding mm-hmm. of how people interact how does that play out right now in what you have here 
for your display and for your anniversary? Oh, this is uh, my 35th anniversary. Like I said, started in 81. And I began, I began to collect then, too. I, I collect seriously then, I, I should say. Mm-hmm. My, my first acquisition was when I was 21, and I was a junior in college. You know, I still have that piece there today. Uh, it's, on, it's on loan to the Charles Wright Museum. Well, they have a couple, a few of my pieces there in, in an exhibit, but uh, so, but I just, I was a kid. I didn't, I was just collecting, and it, it turns out after all those years, I got that piece cleaned up, and it was a great piece. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> just by luck. But what happens for me? I was committed to the arts, but also was committed to collecting. So some of the pieces that I have, that you see in this exhibit. I started with in 1981, and I would always buy something from my artists, you know, and and so it. Looking at this now makes it very. It feels very different because some people come here and say, "How did you do all this?" I'm like, "Well, it's been over 35 years, you know. <laughs> if I did, you know, three a year, you know, it's, yeah. that's a hundred pieces, yeah. you know." So. Uh, but anyway, I just been, I just thought it was very important to collect. Now I, I enjoyed it, and uh, I it may be getting a little bit too big for me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm sure that for each one that you have here, mm-hmm. and they're all varied in mm-hmm. terms of uh, what people see when they come out. Um, there's great stories connected yes. to all of these for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one is. Uh, one artist who we'll be giving a, he, he'll be having an exhibition here uh, on the 14th of October, opening on the 14th, uh, is Ed Clark. Ed Clark is an abstract expressionist. He's uh, in his early 90s now. And uh, Ed Clark was, uh, see, we're going back 35 years ago, so you see that he was a young man approaching the middle age, I guess you would say. And uh, but he came down with all the group of New York artists, but he ended up getting stuck with me, so to speak, because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh-huh. Never hung a show, you know, because I didn't grow up going to galleries. Okay, so anyway, he taught me how to hang art. He began to teach me how to look at art, you know. Uh, so I contribute that experience a lot to Ed Clark, who became one of my best friends in the art community. And then also uh, Al Loving, who's from Detroit. He's like I said, he's deceased now. He was just a genius as an artist. He contributed a lot to my learning. And lastly, MacArthur Binion. Uh, he he's really the one from Detroit who introduced me to all the New York artists. And that's how it came about. But it, it, it's just a wonderful experience to to uh, have met these people and 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 just learn from them and. Also, it helps in developing the eye. One thing I realize is that artists know why that little drop of red is in the painting right at that little spot. And when you hear them talk about that, that's where it becomes fascinating. The other display that you have are a series of uh, portraits. Oh, yes. And uh, I wanted to ask you about that. And sort of tied to that, I have to say, is, uh, is the trademark in a certain way, the hat. Yeah, yes. So can you explain that display and where the hat comes from? <laughs> well, the hat is called a pork pie hat. And uh, the pork pie hat, I have been wearing that hat close to 40 years now. And so it has become, I guess, uh, my signature. And those are portraits of different artists have done of me, just not at, not, it wasn't requested. They just, it was just done and gifted. And, uh, so I just celebrated my 70th birthday. So I thought, ah, that'd be fun just to have a small exhibit of what artist's perspective of what I've done. And by the way, this one piece out there is my only piece of art that I've made, and that's a collage that I did in 1967, 68. Okay. You know. Yeah. But the, um, as for the hat, was it just... Um well, the hat came about because I, w- I always wore hats, uh-huh. and, but I was in New York. And I was at a hatter called Jay Lord, and he had done this hat for a play. And so he only had one. And I tried that hat on, and I was like, you know what? This is really nice. I like this. It's a nice little look. And so I bought that hat, and then I would have him to make other ones after that. 
Okay. You know, so it just it just kind of stuck. You know, that had this stuck, and now I can't leave home without it. <laughs> well, I was going to say, if it was 40 years and it was the same one. That's, uh... It's not the same one. I still had that same one. But, uh, yeah, that, that one, um, it, it's, it, it's had its day. But uh, uh, I guess I'm a little bit rough on them. But, yeah, but I still like to get them made and, uh, uh, and, you know, just carry on like the tradition, you know. Yeah. So that's the, it's a perk I had. Uh, three people. Uh, uh, associated with that hat, that, uh, and that is Lester Young, mm -hmm. Frank Lloyd Wright, and George Anamdi. <laughs> <laughs> you keep good company. Yeah, yeah, and I think I wore it longer than the, uh, both of them. <laughs> I've been doing it for 40 years, so I don't think they did it that long, but you know. Yeah, well, speaking of uh, changing hats, uh, you know, your space has always been about having a different mix. It's not just what's mm -hmm. on the walls, but been having performance as well mm -hmm. and um, you talked about uh, some some updates some new things that mm -hmm. may be coming uh, before we started recording is that something you can discuss oh yes well we have uh, we well as I was saying about Ed Clark opening on the 14th of October mm -hmm. uh, uh, abstract large paintings um, artists um, then on the 15th we have Bilal a musical genius that will be performing here we have, um, so I think those are the, maybe the two major things for October mm -hmm. and other, but we're looking to do other things, work with people with, um, with theatrical and, and, and um, film that we like to have in, in, in a series. We also have here as part of our center, we call it, it's called the Movement Center at the Anomdi, and the Movement Center is a series of dance classes and we have African dance, we have tango, we have Cuban salsa, uh, Detroit ballroom, uh, Lindy hop, then we have a children's pre-ballet class that we have. So we have those uh, going on a regular basis. Um, so that's, that's what we do. We're just trying to make it kind of holistic in a way. We also will be opening up the griot well, we're not opening up, but a, a group is opening up the Griot Music Lounge here. And uh, the Griot Music Lounge is a place where you go and hear only vinyl music. They only play vinyl. And uh, the DJ, that's all they that's all they do. And then uh, we also have Elite Couture. It's a, a clothing boutique, boutique here uh, for ladies. And we also have, of course, Seva is a vegetarian vegan restaurant that's what we have on our campus and we're very happy to have seva here today in their fifth year and it was it, it was very good it's been a very positive experience and at the time they came there were no vegetarian full service vegetarian restaurants in the city and i thought it's very important for us to have a full vegetarian restaurant in the city. How can we be a hip city without a vegetarian restaurant, right? Sure. And so that's how, I, that's how I recruited them because of that purpose. And I wanted to have a greater connection with Ann Arbor, I thought. And if they had a place they can come here, they're like, okay, let's go to Detroit and we'll stop at Savard, then we'll figure out where we're going. <laughs> okay, so. Yeah. And there's even more uh, opportunity, as you say, there's um, some other things that you're planning to build out in the space. Oh, yeah, we are, we're, we're, we're shifting around. We, we're, we're developing where our concert space, we will be able to seat 300 people uh, as opposed to our currently it's 120, 25. Um, we're doing that. We'll be adding a like a little wine bar in, uh, in the next few months and just kind of altering the space so all the space would be utilized and, and you know, just uh, to the max. And then we are, uh, you know, just adding, just, just adding all the different programming. It's just a happy, it's, it's good to be able to do this because I never thought I would be changing this space, you know. <laughs> but the, the ironic part, every about seven, every eight to 10 years, I always change all my gallery spaces anyway. But I thought this one was stuck. I would there'd be no way I could ever change it. All of a sudden, I came up with ways to change it. So <laughs> that's what we're doing. Yeah, so you definitely want to keep mm -hmm. your eyes open for that as we get yes. further into the year. Yeah, I really, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I like to do that. That people know what we're doing. We have a green alley 
Uh, we're at the, well, uh, the Green Alley on the uh, w uh, west side of the building now mm -hmm. uh, through um, Midtown. And then we also have the courtyard here uh, where it's about the patio seating. And so we just want to activate the whole and then begin to do more with the whole Sugar Hill area. Because the building directly behind us, 71 Garfield, has the Socrates in it, a clay studio. Uh, and then we have MoCAD also on across the street from that. So it's just the whole area that we got designated Sugar Hill. And it just we want to just really let it people be known. Okay. okay. Sounds good. Uh, where's the best place online to find out more about what you're doing and things like that? Do you have a website? Yeah, like we that? got a website. We got... Uh, NamdeCenter.org. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so go on the website. You can get on our mailing list so we can send you out to our different email blasts. And uh, we always are having some type of activity here, you know, either through the dance classes, through the films, through the music, uh, exhibitions. The exhibitions is our main stay, uh, but we also want to do that. We have uh, community groups who rent the, do rental space for different type of events uh, here also. If I want to just stop in, what's uh, usually Two, gallery hours? Tuesday through uh, Saturday, 11 to 6. Right. Okay, and if usually if you see someone here, we're open for you. <laughs> okay. Sounds so, good. So, yeah, but the gallery hours, Tuesday through Saturday, 11 to 6. George Namdi with the Namdi Contemporary uh, Art Center here in Midtown. Thanks so much for taking the time and congratulations on 35 years. Oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate this. That's George Namdi. The uh, latest show that he has up here is up, and it's a, it's a collection. It's a celebration of, of the many artists that have come through, as you heard in the interview. And then also, I love the, uh, the, the portraits that uh, many of the artists have done over the years of him, you know, as a little tip of the hat, uh, the pork pie, I guess, back to him, yeah. uh, for uh, all the great work that he's done. And you can get more on what's happening here at Anandi Gallery and the 35th anniversary celebration and more, of course, on our show page this week at Freep.com. You go to the store, right? So they, they expect you to hand over some cash. Sure, if you go to the store. Yeah, sure. because you're like, I, I need that. Here's yeah. five bucks, right? Sure. Well, there's a store in Hamtramck that um, this weekend, if you no longer need something, you just drop it off. But this isn't like a thrift kind of thing. Like, okay. I, like I think people are used to the kind of that donation idea where it's like, oh, I left the stuff at the Goodwill, and then they'll resell it, and then they'll use the money. Right. Well, if you go there and you happen to need something, you don't have to pay for it. So it's like okay. a barter store? You like trade or? It's kind of a it's kind yeah. of an interesting thing. It's called okay. potlatch. Have okay. you heard of this term before? I haven't, but uh, tell yeah. me about it. <laughs> so it's, it's not only an interesting idea, but it has an interesting history too. Okay. So I spoke recently to the man behind this that's taking place this weekend, Richie Wolfile behind Lo and Behold Records in Hamtramck. My name is Richie Wolfile, and this is Lo and Behold Records and Books, based out of Hamtramck, Michigan, on 10022 Joseph Campo. We were here a few months back, but I wanted to stop in real quick and bother you about this uh, event you have coming up, the Potlatch. What is a Potlatch? A Potlatch is uh, an event organized, it's, it was um, developed by the Northwestern uh, Native Americans, like the Pacific Northwest Native Americans, and it's essentially... Um, a way to redistribute the wealth of the tribe where you, you give away things you don't need and even if you if you have nothing and you need things you can come and br just take stuff and you don't have to feel obligated to bring things but it's also a ceremonial offering um, and dinner as well so it's just a little little thing to reinvigorate and reestablish the wealth of the neighborhood or the community so what I do is um, model after the same principle it's I just bring a bunch of things that I don't need anymore. Whether and it's it can be practical things, impractical things. There's always somebody that wants or needs something, you know. Um, like last year when I did it, uh, like my grandmother had just passed, and I, she had about 20 milk crates full of yarn, un, unopened yarn in her basement, you know. So those went out there. I had some giant JBL speakers that were really nice, 
but I just had no use for them. Brought those out, you know, some nice objects, but then random clothes, canned goods that I knew I wasn't going to eat, you know, things like that. And, uh, um, and people from the neighborhood did the same thing, and that's essentially what it's about. Uh, just use the space next to my shop, the empty lot. Um, just sort of as a little little gathering and, you know, bring bring tables, bring stuff. And if you don't want to bring anything and you just want to take some things, just show up and grab them uh, or bring some food. Because the idea is that we have a, have a nice dinner, you know, a lot of fruits, vegetables kind of stuff. So anyone can take part? Anyone is free to bring stuff down? Yeah, completely. It's just, it's, yeah, it's come one, come all, essentially. There's no rules or regulations or, you know, uh, whatever, you know, there's none of that stuff. So uh, when is it going to run? Um, we're going to do it October, the first Saturday, or first Sunday, I'm sorry, in October. It's uh, Sunday, October 2nd. And I'm going to start setting stuff up out there around 11 o'clock in the morning. And just kind of go till nightfall, and, you know, before nightfall, have a, have a dinner. But there are probably, people will probably bring, bring snacks and stuff throughout the day. So, you know, um, people will just be picking up food throughout the day, too. So that's, it's okay. Anything else? Uh, music, bands, anything like that? Um, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to have a couple friends uh, do some music offerings. Um, I asked James, Cor James Cornish if he wanted to uh, have uh, one of his little groups and his dancers out there too, you know, which would be really fun. And uh, I asked my buddy, my buddy Vincent Elizondo if he wanted to um, uh, play some of his beats he's been making lately. And he's got these tapes that he's been making. They're really good. And I thought about asking my buddy Ben too. But, you know, if anybody wants to show up and play a few songs, that's fine, too. It's not, there's not going to be like a big PA out there or nothing like that. It's not, it's just, you know, people just bopping around and just good energy. So you've done this a few times. Uh, what have you seen has sort of been the reaction from folks who show up and, you know, take part? Um, well, it's mixed, you know. Some people are just like, what do you mean I can just have this, you know? Like, there was like a... Um, I put an amplifier, like a little guitar amplifier out there, and this guy was like, wait, I can have this? And I'm like, yeah, you know, totally. And, and he's like, oh, wow. And he, he took it, and then he went, went home, came back with one of his receivers, brought like a nice working receiver, which somebody who'd picked up the JBLs that I had out, like they grabbed that too, and then they came back with a couple turntables that they didn't need. So it's like, you know, it's, it, it becomes um, pretty reciprocal. Uh, and And then people from the neighborhood, like, you know, seeing like, um, like old Bangladeshi ladies come by and see like the, the yarn and they're freaking out. And they're like, we can just have this? I'm like, yeah, and they were just going crazy. So, you know, it's, it, it, everybody smiles no matter what. And nobody walks away um, disappointed. But yeah, like I said, it's just a, a way to redistribute the wealth of the neighborhood. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I don't need all this stuff. Like I don't need, you know, back in, in in the day, I'd be like, well, you know, I don't need, I only got two horses and I got six saddle blankets. Like, what, what do I need, you know? So give them away. And, uh, or I don't hunt anymore, what do I need a horse for or whatever? So it's like, okay, give the horse away. Um, so it's the same thing here. It's just practical, impractical. It's a good little purging too. It's like a, you know, like spring cleaning. It's the same thing, but like for fall, it's a good purging, processing, um, you know, just little cleansing before the fall hits and before it gets too cold to, um, to get out and visit people and commune with people and hang out. So, yeah. Sounds good. Richie Wolfile with uh, Lo and Behold in the Potlatch. Thanks so much for taking time. Yeah, thanks for swinging by this wonderful morning. Richie Wolfile of Lo and Behold Records and Books. That potlatch at Lo and Behold runs from 11 to 7 on Sunday, and it's going to be in the little uh, vacant uh, lot area right next to his shop. Uh, we were over there uh, a few weeks back uh, for detours, kind of talking about all the stuff that he does. And this is, uh, as he says, this is um, sort of a tradition that comes out of, I guess, the, uh, the, uh, the First Nations in the uh, Pacific Northwest, and just the idea that um, there are things that we may have that we no longer need, and there are things, there are people 
people who need things that maybe we have, and it's a way of sort of sharing within the community. So uh, hmm. everyone's uh, free to take part. And so it's just, it, you know, th it's creative ways yeah. of connecting uh, creative people and people all throughout the community. And uh, I just thought, why not highlight that? Sounds like communism or something. <laughs> <laughs> joking, joking, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, not quite, but anyhow, you can get links and all the details on this week's show at Freep.com. It's Detours from the Detroit Free Press. I'm Rob St. Mary. Hey, and I'm Joel Fluent Green. Um, if you ever want to start a business, do you have a business? Eh, sure, like my name, I guess. Okay. <laughs> it's just my own thing, the poetry biz, sure. Yeah, well, yeah. You, you know, there, there really is a culture to um, small businesses, and yeah. specifically startup. And I think sometimes when people hear the word startup, they think, you know, a bunch of guys in, uh, in hooded sweatshirts, you know, who don't get a lot of sunlight and, and never date. <laughs> right. But there's... Um, there's much more to it when we talk about small businesses. And uh, in case you didn't know, there's a Detroit-produced show that's shown nationally on PBS called Startup. And uh, it talks about stories of new businesses from coast to coast, including right here in our city of innovation. And it's heading into its fourth year. So as the fourth season starts, I thought I'd catch up with the producers behind it. Uh, kind of interesting. They're startup unto themselves when it comes to this kind of idea. So I spoke recently to the lead producer, Jenny Fedorovich, and producer and host, Gary Bredo, the key drivers behind startup. Jenny Fedorovich, and I am the producer for Startup Television Project. Uh, Gary Bredo, and I am the host of Startup. Okay, now you started as a filmmaker. How did you end up hosting this PBS show? I didn't trust anybody else to do it, <laughs> truly. I mean, if you want the, the real story, I did uh, uh, filming documentaries, so I knew how to work a camera. Uh, the subject of small business was extremely fascinating to me. I didn't know how people were getting leasing space, getting loans. I had no clue. So instead of filming someone, I turned the camera around after calling Jenny and decided that I, I literally, uh, if, if the way that I wanted the show to be, I was going to have to learn how to be the host if I wanted the show to turn out the way that I wanted it to. And that, when he said, I have this idea, what do you think? I said, that's amazing, because I always like to try new things. So he came and he pitched me the idea, and I said, well, there's really nothing like it, and why not? Why not? Let's do it. And it's now season four, so obviously you guys have had some success. Let's go back to the beginning and talk about that first season. Uh, did you just do it all independently, or did you find that there was PBS or someone behind you that was interested in picking this up and doing it? So first season was very interesting, you know. In Russia we have a saying, you have to eat a cow before you learn how to do something. Uh, so we were gonna do a Michigan-only show. Uh, that's what Gary pitched me. Uh, we went to a local PBS station. They said, wow, this is too good. You know, we wanna take you guys regionally. We shot a second pilot, took it back to them. They said, again, this is too good. We wanna take you nationally. And we found ourselves to be a national show. And uh, we found ourselves with the great news of now having to find money to finance the show because of the PBS model. I mean, is that beyond what you thought? I mean, she said it seemed like it would be more local focused and now obviously it's expanded. Yeah, I mean, uh, when it originally started as, as a Michigan show, uh, I think that we could have probably dreamed that it would have been national, but we had no idea that we would have to um, learn as much as we did in such a short period to be national in that first season. I always reference it as the year of the PBS meat grinder. We learned by sticking our head in the meat grinder and turning. I mean, obviously, you, you guys are pretty well known around here. You know local businesses, you know local artists, and various people doing things. So, I mean, playing in your own backyard, it must be a, a little bit easier. But when it was going national, I mean, that had to have a series of challenges to find sources, to find stories. Finding stories has never been challenging, honestly, because there's so many people, especially when we kicked this off four years ago, the economy, as Gary says, was in less than perfect shape. And so many people turned into opening their own businesses. And as a small business owner, you know, you always want to kind of talk about your business and tell your story. So finding businesses was really not, never that challenging. It's, it, and now it's even less challenging because we have literally thousands of people writing to us. Have you learned sort of as you go across the country, are there certain things happening in certain regions, um, certain ideas, or does it seem to be sort of universal when it comes to startup culture? 
No, I, I think I think that there there's universal things that that tie everything together, but every every place is obviously extremely unique um, in the way that people kind of. Uh, handle and approach small business? Uh, are they community focused? Are they sort of independent focused? Like the tech culture is a lot is a lot different than kind of the main street retail culture. And we kind of go across the board. The thing that I find fascinating is, is that the folks that, that really want to be doing what they're doing always seem to, you know, have some sort of tie to their success level. Um, and you can kind of see when we when we interview the ones that aren't really into it or have their head somewhat in something else. Um, so that's something I think Jenny and I have come to recognize is uh, people's true passion for what they're doing. You know what? I don't think it's necessarily regions. I think it's the type of entrepreneur, right? So and we and we divide those people. There's people who are accidental entrepreneurs. They literally fell into a business by accident. Or there's people that finally said, I don't want to be an architect anymore. I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. And they decided to really follow what's inside their heart, which could be making coffee. So I think it's not necessarily region as opposed to the type of people who are doing business and how they ended up making that business possible. Being in um, film production in, in the way that you guys are doing it, you're not part of a station, you're an independent business, so you're kind of a startup, talking to other startups. Is there anything you've learned about startup culture that helps inform your business? Again, I think it goes back to um, truly being passionate about what you're going to do because since starting this show, which again is a startup, but we have a background in production. So this is something that Jenny and I both have loved for a long time. I've loved production from the time I first got a Sony Handycam when I was probably 17, 18 years old. It's when we try other businesses that things kind of go a little little haywire because when you meet people and they're like, you know, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So then, you know, we we try our hand at something else because people are always pitching opportunities. And then you just keep learning the same lesson over and over again until you go back to what you know and love. I think that every person that we meet, I very carefully listen to their story. And I think for us, or for me personally, definitely helped to define kind of laser sharp focus Um, in terms of the most successful people that I notice, they find out what their passion is, they follow it with execution, and they have laser sharp focus. And that just keep your eye on the ball and this is what I'm doing and continue to take steps to do that. And and with time, we have become much better business people because of the things we've learned from the people we interviewed. Now you're on season four and was wondering over that time of all the people that you've met and, and various things, is there a story that you remember that it just, this one just keeps kind of coming back to you? Is there a certain person or a certain story that you remember that that kind of haunts you, I guess, or echoes for you? For me, I do have that story. Again, we've interviewed, what, 117 people by now Mm -hmm. Um, in casting because I talk to a lot of people. I've probably talked to 500 people. Probably one, and I can't say it's my favorite because they're all great, but um, the story of a Quaba bed and breakfast is one of my favorite stories. Um, This woman was actually the chief editor of Essence magazine, and that's the job she dreamt of as a little girl. She was seven years old. She said, I'm going to be that. She took all the necessary steps to get there. And once she got there, she quit her job. And when she walked away from her job, people thought she was insane. She was just on the red carpet with Biggie or Mary J. Blige, and she had everything going for her. And she quits it to open up a bed and breakfast in Bed-Stuy, New York. Not the best neighborhood. So, And the city is not allowing her to open that. And she fights for that really hard. And she does, you know, she perseveres. She opens this business. So long story short, she ends up buying a few more. And as we interviewed her, she had just bought a Woolworth mansion. And she sat there and she said, my grandmother said to me, you go, girl. At one point, I wasn't allowed to sit at the counter. And now you bought their mansion. And that, to me, is just, my God, it gives me shivers every time I think about when she said that and what it means to her. Her. She went from chief editor to serving people breakfast because that's what she loves. There's there's a lot of them, uh, but I gotta say that I'm gonna focus on one from this season for sort of a different reason. That'd be Red Bay Coffee. The guy's name is uh, Kiba Conte, and the reason why is because I think that a lot of people fall into roles based on their ego. For example, you're Rob. I could call you Rob the author, right? But do you just want to be Rob the author, right? Um, this guy was uh, KB. He was a photographer for people like E40 and Too Short back in the day, and an artist. Um, but I don't think that KB wanted to necessarily constantly exude that specific role. Um, he wanted to make change in his community. 
started a Kickstarter and opened up a coffee shop that is complete profit sharing, meaning that he takes a small percentage and the employees keep the rest. He's putting them up all over the place. And I think I like it because Kiba isn't pigeonholed by his sense of identity or self or ego. He's purely himself and driven by what he can do for others in the community, and that had a huge impact on me. Still trying to learn on a daily basis how to be more like that. You know what I mean? So um, the season four, uh, what is it like for each season? And then how does this season sort of build on what came before? So we do our seasons by geographical regions, uh, but for selfish reasons, we always have Detroit in the mix and Michigan. Uh, and that's something that we said to ourselves. We're going to try to expose Detroit from a positive standpoint as much as we can. So in this season, you'll see uh, five Michigan-based businesses. Uh, four of them are in Detroit. One is in Ann Arbor. Oh, I'm sorry, three in Detroit, one in White Lake, one in Ann Arbor. Um, and the rest is West Coast. So we flew to Seattle, we got in a car, and we drove down to San Diego. So we've covered the entire West Coast this season. Uh, last year was uh, East Coast. We've also covered the Rust Belt area. What is it for you as a host this time going down the West Coast? What did you What did you see? What What stories? Uh, what are you excited about? Uh, people getting a chance to take a look at in the season. I've always wanted to do the West Coast tour since season one, just because uh, as March rolls around, you're so you, as a Michigander, you get so sick of the cold in the winter, so I really wanted to <laughs> take an early vacation uh, and and go down the coast and talk to cool people and hear interesting stories and, and uh, travel. It's fun. Um, but of course, the season got pushed to June, so it was, it was, it was blazing hot, <laughs> both here and there. Uh, it's the same, like Jenny said, the people, the, the geographic region really doesn't make that much of a difference. There's a common thread between all the people, but West Coast was, uh, it was a fantastic journey, I'd say that. From, uh, I guess, a fan mail aspect, uh, do you get fan mail? Do you get emails, letters, whatever, uh, talking about the show to you? And what have you seen has been the impact on the show on, on people who maybe want to start their own businesses? Every single day. You know, we're actually surprised sometimes me and Gary sit there and we go, oh my God, like who would take their time to write to the show? <laughs> and we're shocked by the amount of fan mail we get, honestly. And it's everything that could vary from a guy saying, you know what, I used to watch Sunday football and now I watch your show. Or you have tremendously helped me follow my dreams, get off the couch and open the business, which has always been our idea for the show, right? We want to inspire people. There's a reason why we do this. And every time we get a fan mail that says, you just helped me follow my dream, or you've given me a roadmap, or this is so helpful, or I really just enjoy watching this amongst all the crap that's there on television, we kind of call each other and go, did you just see this fan mail? I did that yesterday. Um, I shopped at Meyer on 8 Mile, and, uh, and I had a gentleman come up to me in the bacon aisle named Dave. Dave, if you're listening to this, how are you? Um, and, uh, and, he, and he was a big fan of the show. And he's like, you know, uh, congrats. I've seen, he's quoting a lot of the different episodes. He did go to Social Club Grooming Company after watching it last season. Went down and said that he went there because of the show. Got a great haircut and awesome experience. We took pictures together. It's, it's an amazing experience. I get more excited when people come up and say they like the show than they do. I think I freak them out a little bit. I'll be like, can we take a picture? I love it. I love it because it shows me that what we're doing is actually, it, like, it's getting to people. And that's, that's, I, I love that because these people's, their stories are so positive and inspirational. If it's getting to them, then it means that what we're doing is working and for the right reasons. I know it's a little early to talk about five and beyond, but is, no, there, any, <laughs> is there any place uh, that you want to go? Is there uh, sort of a new theme, a new idea, something that you haven't done yet? Well, this this year, actually, season four, as we talk about it, it looks extremely difficult, uh, different from the standpoint of how the show was actually shot. And every year, we're going to get better and better and get more creative with how we're making the show, how we're shooting it, what the pace is. Uh, the goal for year five for us is we want to go to the uh, to the south. We want to hit, especially actually, New Orleans is on our on our list, and uh, we find areas like that that were hit really hard by what had recently happened is that's how you watch it revives through small business. So we're looking forward to that and covering Texas, Florida, and those places. Oh, I, I was just going to say this, the show changed a lot in the fact that we do a lot more um, uh, voiceover narrative now, and we, we, we've removed some elements of the show. So for people watching uh, that, that do know the show, uh, you'll see some pretty significant changes in terms of the opening and closing of it.
And I mean, obviously, the last uh, four seasons in anything uh, these days, especially in broadcast, is, uh, is is quite an honor. So, how has the reaction been from uh, PBS nationally, and then uh, the member stations? The stations really enjoy the show. They keep programming us. That's that's the testament. We're now what in 96% of the country, mm-hmm. uh, which is something we couldn't even dream of before when we just started the show. We're actually the only show in a public broadcast history that has been carried across all three stations. So there's PBS, Create, and World, and that's a huge honor for us. Uh, the show is also sold independently. We're in 26 countries now, and you know we just hope to continue to grow and, and bring good programming. 26 countries, are they dubbing you? Or are they doing subtitles? Uh, no, they're, they're dubbing, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen one yet, but I really want to see myself in Thai. Like, speak, you know, Thai, the Thai language. Is it called Thai? Can we edit that? I think so. Is the language called Thai? Probably. Probably. I, I, I'm, I'm ignorant, too, or but that's in, okay. In, in Arabic, because uh, we, we get a lot of uh, in-flight video from, um, I think it's the uh, Dubai United Arab Emirates hmm. Airlines. Well, I, uh, 26 different countries. That's 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 quite good. Yeah, Gary is actually really huge in Vietnam. No, honestly, <laughs> we get a lot. Of, we get a lot of fan no, mail. I'm I'm six four two fifty. I'm huge in Vietnam. They're a very small like culture of people. I'm six four two fifty. That's a, I'm I'm huge in Vietnam. Literally, the, the Jolly Green Giant of Vietnam over here. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, for sure. We've been asked for an appearance, so I'm waiting for him to say yes, so we can go there. <laughs> I mean, will that, do you see that as eventually maybe another step uh, international, seeing uh, if, if startup culture is different in other places? Oh, I, I would absolutely love that more than anything. We would just have to work that out with our, uh, our worldwide distributor, APT Worldwide, and figure out how we could do some specialty global episodes working with individual markets. But for right now, I'm laser light focused on a Christmas special. I really want to do a startup Christmas special focused just on Michigan businesses that are doing Christmas related stuff. You know, not like Frankenmuth, but something smaller. What do you think? This is the first time I'm hearing about this. And <laughs> a Hanukkah special. Yeah, exactly. Hanukkah. See, I'm offended now we're doing a Christmas special. <laughs> no, I'm just Holiday kidding. Special. Holiday special, yeah. yes. <laughs> I could see him with a sweater near a blazing fire and knocks on the door. People come and they bring their wares. I could see that. This is how really most, most of our day goes like this. Gary comes up with ideas, and I say no. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how the day goes. <laughs> I don't see the holiday special. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if they're listening, uh, it was, I believe, um, WGVU or Central. They called us about a holiday special. I'd, I'd like to do a Michigan-only holiday special. So we'll have to reach out to our local, uh, local markets and figure that out. Of course, you'll be shooting that like in the next few weeks. <laughs> it's like just in time for Halloween. Let's get in the Christmas spirit. Yeah, absolutely. I don't see anything wrong with doing a holiday special. Very nice. Um, as for the details on startup, um, when can people see it uh, as it's broadcast? Where can they find out more? Uh, in Detroit market, we're going to start airing next Sunday at 1 p.m., and it's going to be on every Sunday. We're going to kick off on the World Channel at 1.30 p.m. on October 2nd, but people can always visit our website, www.startup-usa.com. We have a little box. You put your zip code, and it tells you exactly when the show is running in your area. Anything you want to add about this uh, fourth season or start up the show in general? Obviously, with a, being a PBS uh, television show or public television show, uh, our sponsors are the only reason that we can function and operate. So this year, uh, UPS store and donor agency have been fantastic to work with. Pure Michigan have been on for, now this is their second, going into their third season, uh, season five. So uh, Pure Michigan is, is absolutely incredible. And then work with FCA, Fiat Chrysler Automobiles. So. Yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing ride, and, and we can't do it without our sponsors. Sounds good. Well, Jenny Fedorovich and Gary Bredo, Startup, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Jenny Fedorovich and producer host Gary Bredo of Startup. That show airing locally here on Channel 56. Detroit on Sunday afternoons and of course you can find out more about that show through the link and stay up to date on our show page for everything on detours on our show page at freep.com. 
you know, we've given you a few suggestions so far as to things you can do for the weekend, and usually this is where the top five comes down from on high from the Freak Brain Trust. They usually like to hide it in uh, plain sight, as we've told you. They've gotten really creative with that. But this week they decided to take a little bit of a break. I guess uh, it must be uh, end of summer. They want to get out and enjoy the weather. <laughs> uh, so I would advise you go to uh, Freep.com or you pick up. Uh, Thursday's paper, get the play section, and that is sort of a way to uh, tap into the Freak Brain Trust in terms of all the things that they have going on. And what I thought we would do right now instead is uh, Joel and I are going to go back and forth, kind of talk about uh, some of the things that we're excited about, things that we've seen that are going to be coming up this weekend, uh, places where we may even pop up. It just depends. Yeah. And then also um, after that, I kind of want to introduce you a bit more to him and uh, some of the things he has going on in ways that you can keep up with him as well. So uh, kind of starting it off here for me, I mean, there's a few things going on. I think this is kind of funny. There's two rival like monologue uh, shows really? going on on Thursday. Yeah, dueling monologues. Dueling monologues, nice. but they're in two different places. There's okay. one at Smalls, okay, in Hamtramck, and there's one at Go Comedy, nice. out in Ferndale. So, um, I mean, I, I I think in a way this might be something, um, maybe a more of a fiction type version of something like The Moth, which oh, I think okay. a lot of people are familiar with, kind of the, that storytelling kind of thing. But these are these are monologues. So, uh, mm. who who knew that they were going to be two on the same night in two different places? So. So if you you want to get your monologue on, uh, you know where to go. Uh, if if you're in the mood for um, some some rock stuff, uh, great show that appears to be coming up and they've gotten a lot of attention in the last few years. The band Titus Andronicus playing at L Club on Thursday, uh, Friday night actually right here at Nanandi Gallery. Um, my publisher of the Orbit Magazine Anthology book, Wayne State University Press, holding an event here for their 75th anniversary. Hard to believe uh, Wayne State University Press been around 75 years. Wow. They're going to have an event here. And then on uh, Saturday afternoon, this is out a bit um, because they have different locations. Uh, the Museum of New Art, which we've had on, on the show, uh, Mona, they're holding a thing they call the Detroit Biennial at their gallery space in Armada. And we'll make sure to put a link up there. And the thing that's really interesting about this, this is the second time that uh, Jerry Saltz, the well-known critic from the New York area, although he grew up in Chicago, we won't hold that against him. Very, (laughs) very acidic, acerbic wit kind of guy. I remember a few years ago, he got banned from, um, what was it, Museum of Contemporary Art in uh, in New York. He he burned his... uh, (laughs) He burned his press card, <laughs> and uh, he's been known to put some acerbic stuff up on the social media that's gotten him uh, uh, banned at least once from Facebook. So uh, oh, wow. Jerry Salt's uh, definitely a man of opinion when it comes to art, and, and definitely kind of a kind of a comedic figure. So that's uh, the Museum of New Art, and they're going to have that out in Armada. As for you, uh, what do you see as on on the list? What do you what are you looking forward to? Well, you know, since we're on the subject of anniversaries, uh, this Friday, September the 30th, at Eastern Market, they're celebrating their 125th anniversary. They'll have a gala. It's in Shed 3. It's from 6 to 11.30. Uh, for more information on that, go to easternmarket.com. Also, the next day, keeping up with Eastern Market, uh, 125th anniversary celebration. They have tours, activities, barrel rides for the kids, giveaways, a lot of fun. So if you're partying as an adult the night before, bring the kids the next day during the day. Also, that schedule is at easternmarket.com, so make sure to check that out. Also, October the 1st, that same day from 4 to 8, the Uptown, Uptown excuse me, uh, Toast Pop-Up Wine Party is going on on Livinois. You know, Live 6 area is really hot right now. And so I definitely encourage you guys to check that out. It's only a $5 suggested donation. We'll have vendors, great wine selections. Uh, it's supposed to be one of the best monthly wine tasting events in the city. So definitely want to check that out for all the grown folks of savvy, sophisticated nature. <laughs> also, Sound Off Sundays. This is one of my favorite events. This is going on this Sunday, uh, hosted by Ken Brass and Afi. Uh, I love poetry. I'm a poet. I don't go to a lot of poetry events, but I dipped into this one a couple weeks ago and I had one of the best times ever. So I definitely encourage everybody, if you're into poetry, you want to get out amongst a young crowd, have a good time. It's going on this Sunday at the Baltimore Gallery this Sunday. It starts at 8.45. I think the cover is only like five bucks. Let me tell you, I had a great time last time I went. So that's at the Baltimore Gallery. Uh, Make sure to check that out. That's 314 East Baltimore, right in the uh, New Center area. And they have pastries available available, uh, by Little Blue Hen. Let me tell you, these pastries were excellent, man. I'm talking about, like, they had a a cinnamon uh, cheesecake 
which huh. I've never had before, and it was friggin' delicious. Nice. So make sure to definitely support the Baltimore Gallery. They get a nice young crowd in there. It's a lot of fun. So that's this Sunday. Check it out. Well, I mean, we talked about all the things that, uh, you know, you're hip to. I mean, those pastries sound great. Oh, yeah. So, so maybe I got to get over there and get some pastries. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but as for you, I mean, you've got, uh, as I alluded to in the opening, man, you are, you are a busy man. You've got, you've got books. You've got plays. You've got uh, events. Uh, I, I don't know how you keep it all straight. Tell me what's happening. Well, yeah, man. The, the latest is um, I'm doing a, actually a masquerade affair at the Jazz Cafe at the Music Hall, October 28th. So Halloween weekend. You know, Halloween's on a Monday this year, so that's no fun. So just come <laughs> out, hang out that Friday preceding that and uh, before that. It's actually called Music of the Night, a little play on the whole opera, you know, Phantom of the Opera type of thing. Because our, our headlining act is none other, none other than um, Travis Pratt, who's an excellent tenor. Um, he wowed people on America's Got Talent, uh, phenomenal talent, and so he'll be performing. And also we have Jay Ivey, who actually won a Grammy for working on Kanye West's first album. Um, he's a poet, um, nationally known. He'll be performing also as our headlining poetry act. And it's going to be a great time, so I encourage you guys to come on out. If you want to um, hear about tickets or whatever, we're selling them on Eventbrite. Um, this show is called Music of the Night, A Masquerade Affair. So definitely check that out, eventbrite.com. Just put that in, search it for Detroit events. Uh, tickets are going on sale right now. Speaking of Travis Pratt, who I mentioned before, as far as America's Got Talent, me and him are actually co-writing a play together. Uh, I'm really excited about that. It's about the life of Roland B. Hayes, who was an opera singer a lot of people don't know about. He was a, a pioneering um, black opera singer back way in back in the day. Uh, this is before, you know, Paul Ropes and people like that even came around. Um, he made a you know, big impact overseas, but he really wasn't really respected or known here and the U.S. And so it's really exciting to, to bring his story to the forefront and really talk about that. So that'll be premiering sometime the end of November at the Music Hall. So you just kind of keep an eye out for that. But um, I'm really excited about that. So that's the play I'm working on. Books, definitely doing a book of love poetry sometime next year, probably want to drop that. So kind of look out for that. But like, you know, my website's joelfluentgreen.com. If you want to stay up on events and that sort of thing, definitely check that out. I wanted to loop back uh, a bit on the uh, on the play. Yes. So, so kind of tell me about this. Uh, it's uh, what is it structured and sort of what part are you going to play? Man, well, see the thing is, I'm doing the narration and also I'm playing uh, Roland's accompanying pianist. So it's kind of like his best friends. We're using a little liberty with the story, but um, you know, basically, I'm, I'm encouraging him to follow his dreams and not give up and to keep it going, uh, despite the fact that you know there's a lot of uh, you know racial issues and things he had to deal with back then that weren't really allowing him to make the impact he wanted to. And so I'm basically encouraging him to keep it going, follow your dreams, that sort of thing. I'm like his, you know, sidekick type of guy or whatever. So we're gonna make it fun though, but it's a four person play. Uh, this is my first time writing a play, but I'm definitely up for the challenge. I'm excited about it. Um, I appreciate the music off even having faith in this story, you know, because it's a story like I wasn't even that familiar with it. I've heard of him, but I didn't know anything about him really. So it was kind of cool to have to do the research and to learn about somebody so amazing that's done so many amazing things. And his story, it's timeless. It's all about following your dreams, not listening to naysayers, you know, going out there and making things happen regardless of any obstacles. So it's a timeless story. So I'm really excited about that. And all of that's available on your site? Yeah, I'll be posting updates about that. But I mean, like, you know, Facebook, uh, Instagram and all that. But um, I'll have dates to all my upcoming events on my website, which is joelfluentgreen.com. So, yeah, so, yeah. Well, uh, the rundown for everything that you need for the weekend, plus what's the latest with uh, Fluent. You can get it all, of course, whenever you want it and wherever you happen to be at Freep.com. For this week's edition of Detroit Arts History, we remember a man who brought magic to Michigan and, in turn, the world. It was this week in 1885 that Henry Bowden was born in Chicago. After starting in stage magic in his teens, Bowden would later become known as the Great Blackstone, who would take his cue from other magicians of the era, like Thurston the Great, who exuded continental charm by wearing a tuxedo and a bow tie, helping to set up the visual look for what people expected a magician to be for many decades that followed. Also, Harry Blackstone's great illusions wowed audiences for decades, became known for such famous pieces as Levitating a Woman, as well as Sawing Her in Half, but of course, keeping with the modern times, he used a circular saw. Although born in Chicago, southwest Michigan would be his refuge away from the spotlight. In the 1920s, Blackstone settled in Michigan, in St. Joseph County, in the town of Cologne, uh, buying a place that he would later dub Blackstone Island, which the locals still do today. But what Blackstone also brought to town was his gift for illusion and the willingness to share it with the community, 
that helped to dub the town of Cologne as the magic capital of the world, in part due to a business that he helped to inspire there. Founded by a fellow magician and friend of Harry Blackstone, the Abbott Magic Company was founded by Percy Abbott in 1934 and still operates there today, creating illusions for professional and amateur magicians. Beyond that, the town of Cologne also boasts an annual four-day festival of magic, honoring the Abbott Company as well as the man who brought the magic to town many years ago, the Great Blackstone. Harry Blackstone Sr. died in 1965 at the age of 80 and was laid to rest in that Michigan town. As a matter of fact, Main Street changed its name in his honor. So this week, remember the Great Blackstone on what would have been his 131st birthday. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Detours from the Detroit Free Press. I'm Rob St. Mary. And I'm Joel Fluent Green. Remember, the conversations and stories do not stop here. You can get more information on everything you've heard and more anytime at Freep.com. Remember to subscribe to the show, Detours, on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get quality podcasts. And don't miss out on the latest updates and breaking stories from around the world and your neighborhood through our social media channels. You can always follow me on Twitter at RobDET. Follow the Detroit Free Press at Freep and also at FreepNT. Uh, you can also follow me on Instagram, Joel Fluent Green. That's J O E L F L U E N T G R E E N E. Can't forget the E at the end. And I'm not really on Twitter, but Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. Also, my website is myname.com, joelfluentgreen.com. And of course, you can get the print edition of the Detroit Free Press available at finer stores throughout the metro area. Our theme music and beats you hear each and every week are by Detroit producer Eddie Logix. That's L O G I X. Thanks for taking the ride.